Hi, everyone, and thank you for listening to GateWorld Interviews. What you're about to hear is a very special conversation with Stargate co-creator Dean Devlin. Dean co-wrote and produced the original 1994 Stargate feature film with Roland Emmerich. While we've been covering the franchise at GateWorld for more than two decades, this is the very first time we got to talk directly with Dean himself. He sat down with David Reed on his brand new YouTube show, Dial the Gate. This is a set of long-form interviews presented by GateWorld and streaming live each weekend. We wanted to bring you the full conversation with Dean Devlin here on the GateWorld interviews feed, but be sure to subscribe to Dial the Gate on YouTube to make sure you get the rest of these conversations. You can find the full archives and the upcoming schedule at dialthegate.com. For more conversations with Stargate's cast and crew, you can also subscribe to GateWorld interviews wherever you get your podcasts, or find the full archive of more than 200 interviews at gateworld.net. Now, here's David Reed. Welcome to episode seven of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Thank you so much for joining me, everyone who's out there live. We have uh, 80 in there right now, and uh, the last uh, program ended with uh, 250 with Paul McGillian. So thanks again to Paul. This episode, I have the honor and uh, privilege of bringing in Mr. Uh, Dean Devlin, who was the co-writer and producer on the original Stargate feature film, one of my uh, all-time movie heroes. So we're going to uh, bring him in in just a moment here. But before we get that started, I want to let you know how this is going to work. So after uh, Dean comes in, I have a round of questions for him. The audience will be invited about midway through the show to submit their questions. You can do so right now in the YouTube live chat feed. And then uh, at the end of the show, I have an amazing piece of fan art submitted uh, by a, a Stargate fan. And it's this Stargate, I can't describe it. It's Stargate in a, in a Japanese art style. It's absolutely beautiful. And I thought it would be perfect for this. So that's what we have. Before I get uh, into bringing Dean into the show, if you'd like Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, it would mean a great deal if you click the like button. It really makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show grow its audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops, and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute guest changes, which may happen all the time. This is key if you plan on watching the show live, and clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next several days on both the Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring in Mr. Dean Devlin. Hello, sir. Hi. Dean, this is such a pleasure. You are one of the reasons why I wanted. It's too early to say it's a pleasure yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could curb your enthusiasm a little bit and reserve that judgment for later in the show. <laughs> I mean, it's you. You are one of my sci-fi heroes, and you have always been so very good about uh, uh, being there for the fans. And you know, because you're you're a fan of sci-fi yourself. So totally. I appreciate you being here. Uh, what do you, what have you been working on lately? What's been going on? Well, uh, uh, we during this uh, year of the pandemic, we've actually been shooting three TV series on three different continents. Wow. So we've been in the Philippines on a show called Almost Paradise. We're shooting uh, uh, The Outpost for the CW in uh, Serbia. Wow. And we've just started our uh, reboot of Leverage 2.0 that we are shooting in New Orleans right now. So it's uh, it's been a wild year. My goodness. How do you keep it all straight? Just uh, patience and caffeine. sleep? A lot, lot of caffeine. <laughs> a lot of caffeine. This set behind you here, this is, this is an image from one of your shows, right? Yes, this is one of the sets from uh, Leverage. Okay. It's a personal, I'm not actually on the set. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, I ran into you... Uh, not last fall, I believe, but the fall before, you were uh, doing the um, promotion for Bad Samaritan. And uh, you were walking through the convention floor. And I was like, oh my God, it's Dean Devlin. <laughs> and you're doing was your that, live was show. That, Denver or that was, sure. that was where, in Anaheim. Where, 
in Anaheim. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I I stopped you in the middle of your show and asked for a photo, <laughs> and you were gracious <laughs> enough to provide one, a selfie. And uh, then after the uh, the panel for Bad Samaritan, uh, I was I told you about a show that I was working on, uh, a Stargate interview series, and and you said let's do it, and. You know that that particular one, you know, went the way of of the dodo. MGM uh, put it; they they closed that. But now I'm doing my own thing, and and I really appreciate you uh, you you holding up your end of the bargain and saying, you know what, we can still we can still talk. So this means a great happy deal. To be, yeah. Very I happy to be. I loved that movie. I oh. uh, it was a great thriller, and what I really loved about it was the notion that. People who are good can still be led astray and can still do some pretty evil things, you know, and sometimes they have to be smacked in the side of the head and reminded <laughs> that this is not the way to behave. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it was a interesting story in that you had you had someone who was uh, not exactly law abiding, but at the same time was not violent who got sucked into a violent situation. And uh, obviously it's a situation that wouldn't have happened had he not been uh, of dubious morals. But uh, in that moment, his true core of his morality comes to play. Will he stand up for someone he doesn't know who's in danger? And in the process also say, yeah, by way of, of coming across this information and this individual, I was doing a bad thing. So in order to do the right thing, he must disclose what he's done and, you know, pay the piper accordingly. That's right. Yeah, it was a great film. Uh, anyone out there who has not seen it, I totally recommend it. Um, there are two films from my childhood that stand out to me as, as a moviegoer. I was born in 83. And the first one is Jurassic Park. And it, it just set the bar for me in terms of how mind-boggling visual effects could be and how how amazing they could be to tell a compelling story and sound and well well acted is well acted and everything else and then the second one for me uh, as uh, a child going into the film was i bet you can guess the second one star wars independence day ah <laughs> 1996, 96, right? Six, that's 1997. right. 1997. I loved that movie. It was fun. The The casting was perfect. The visual effects were amazing. You didn't go all digital. You used models, you know, where it was appropriate. You used digital where it was appropriate, where I, I think, you know, uh, more films that came out later should probably have done the same, you know? that That film changed my life. It was wow. it was such a fantastic experience. Uh, do you do you have fond memories of that after all these years? You know, it, it it's a movie that's hard to talk about because it's the only time in my life where every single thing went right from the very beginning to the very end. Really? And when we were making the movie, we were waiting for the second shoot to drop. It's like, okay, it can't be this good. It can't be this. I mean, we wrote the script in two weeks. We sent it out wow. to studios on a Wednesday. We, we were in pre-production on the following Monday. I mean, these things never happen, you know, and, and to get our dream cast. I mean, it was just, it, it, we had more fun than, than anyone should have with their clothes on. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> did, you, uh, did you believe the success of the film? Because it exploded. Well, we had a feeling that it would do better than our previous film, which was Stargate. Yeah. We, we thought this would do better than that, but we had no idea it was going to be, at that time, the number one movie in the history of the world. That we we didn't even dare to dream about. Yeah, that was it was insane. And I I bought all the memorabilia from that. All the 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 discs, the floppy discs that came out with all the games on it. It was the it really was the perfect film. I really think even today I'll go back and I'll watch it on my big screen, and it holds up better <laughs> I think than it did. The visual effects certainly look more amazing than they did on the VCR cassette tapes and everything else. It's it's one the of the only thing that doesn't hold up for some reason is is the helicopter blades. In somehow in the transfer from film to video, they get real wonky. And I, and really. And I, yeah, one day I'd love to go fix that. <laughs> okay, absolutely. That, yeah, it, it's pretty much the way it looked at the time. You were 15 uh, when Star Wars came out 
1977. You were 13? Wait, was it? Wasn't I 13? No. So 77? No, you're right. I was 15. That's right. I was 15. <laughs> Tell us I think I hadn't it. turned 15 yet because it was March, right? Yeah, it was March. You were, weren't were you going to turn yeah. 16 that year? Or Okay. Anyway. No. Yeah. So no, I, I would turn 15 that year in August. Uh, so. Understood. Okay. You were at the first showing the first yep. night. Tell well, us. It was actually, it was the afternoon. It was the first oh, showing. Okay. The afternoon. And it was in the afternoon. I was number nine in line. And I. And I had no idea what it was I was going to see. I hadn't read any reviews or anything. I, 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 at the time, I was living in the Valley uh, in Studio City, and I took a bus by myself to Hollywood. I uh, went to the Grohmann's Chinese Theater, got in line. And it was so amazing because it, it was sold out. Again, none of us knew what we were going to see. And within the first three minutes of the movie, Darth Vader walks on screen and the entire audience starts booing and hissing. And I was like, how do we even know to do that? How did this audience participation happen? He's in black. And, uh, it changed my life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I there there is something about that franchise and how it just is bulletproof and withstanding the test of time. And I think there are elements inside of it from um, Joseph Campbell that oh, I think sure. uh, I think Lucas really keyed in on, and a lot of uh, Jap- a lot of samurai movies as well. It just has that perfect that perfect combination that just have generations coming back to it again and again. Yeah, it was it was a remarkable film, and I mean that whole first trilogy for me was just spectacular. But you know, it's interesting because I know we're going to get into Stargate at some point right. here. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when when you do have something like a Star Wars where the fans connect to it so deeply and passionately, you ultimately end up with a fan base that is almost impossible to please. <laughs> That's true. You know, because because their own imaginations and their own investments are so deep. I mean, I, I find it very interesting as each one of these new Star Wars movies comes out and to see how they get savaged and loved at the same time. And And I'm always surprised how rarely I'm in agreement with most people on it. And and the fact that that People can love one movie and hate the other and just still keep coming back for more is a real tribute to how deep that uh, that love is for that fan base. It shows how you you can't really get upset over something that you don't care about. Yeah, it, that's true. It shows that, that the fan base has taken it and made it, and from my experience, it's almost a religious event going <laughs> and seeing one of those movies. Yeah. You know, it's like going into church and just having this thing, a a a present a presence wash over you, and to be elevated and transformed through storytelling, is a wonderful experience. It's really interesting. Uh, that my my eldest daughter, when she was really young, I turned her on to Star Wars, and and she fell in love with it. She wanted to have Star Wars stuff on her bed, and I'll never forget when she when she uh, ended up going to school, for being a girl who liked Star Wars. And she ended up feeling embarrassed about liking Star Wars because of this pressure. And she kind of like rebelled against it afterwards. And I thought it was such an interesting thing that, you know, it, it, I guess at that age, the boys wanted it to be theirs. They right. didn't want the girls to share in it. It was such an interesting thing. No, I, th- I think Carrie was was a fine example of, no, that's, it's, it's for everyone. <laughs> for uh, sure. Dean, who are your personal heroes? People in your life, people literary, people of, of the film and television industry? Well, you know, there's heroes in different aspects. You know, I mean, I, I think we, we're, we're blessed to live in a time where there's a lot of heroes and a lot of villains, you know, and a lot of people that you can relate to. I think if we're talking about filmmaking, without a doubt, Spielberg is at the top of that list for me. Um, Roland Emmerich, who was my partner and my, yeah. my mentor, you know, definitely one of my heroes. My father, who was a filmmaker, uh, was definitely one of my heroes, you know, and, and that's really kind of the path I went down, but then I also, you know, I, I was really motivated by the the, uh, the films of Francois Truffaut, uh, Scorsese, Woody Allen, uh, James Cameron. You know, uh, so they, there's a lot of heroes in my life. Who set you on the the course to becoming the man you are? Who was the most influential? Uh, probably my father. Probably my father. Um, we had such a contentious relationship in that my father was a movie producer and he hated the movie business. Really. He hated it, and he literally forbade me from being in it. Oh, and, there you go. 
And uh, we went over a year without speaking because I was going to do it with or without his permission. And uh, ultimately, he accepted the fact that uh, there was no turning me away from it. But uh, uh, I think those early lessons from him on, on, on what made it so miserable for him so that I could create a path for myself that would not be miserable, you know, and uh, uh, his advice and his wisdom were really helpful for avoiding a lot of the traps that can happen in, uh, in the entertainment business. Wow. Tell us about creating Stargate. Um, you co-wrote it with, with Emmerich. Mm-hmm. Um, which of you came up with the, the idea of the gate itself originally? Neither of us. So what happened was this. I was an actor in a movie that Roland had done. And I had ended up, it's a long story, but I ended up doing some rewriting on that. And he ended up liking my writing. And we started to work together doing scripts. And as we were looking at projects to do, he kept telling me about a a project that he'd been working on since he was in film school called Necropole. And what it was about was, it was about a, a spaceship that was buried underneath the Great Pyramid of Giza. And he had these great scenes where these children are lured there at night and they vanish and everything. But he had never really flushed it out, but he really loved this idea of a spaceship buried under the Great Pyramid of Giza. And I had been working on something that was very rough in my head that I, I jokingly would call Lawrence of Arabia in outer space. <laughs> and in mine, it was two, it was a good guy, bad guy who were chasing each other um, uh, in space and they go through a wormhole, but the good guy, he hesitates for five seconds before he follows him in. But those five seconds end up being 30 years on the other side when he lands. And by then the villain has taken over this other world. There's a time change. Okay. So that was my project. Necropole was his project. And we said, maybe there's some way to kind of connect these together and turn it into one project. And uh, uh, a wonderful production designer named Oliver Scholl, uh, he was hearing our idea and he said, he said, you know, there's a device that's, that's used very often in science fiction literature, but not that often in science fiction films. And he said, it's the, the teleportation device. You know, we saw it in the fly and of course it was in Star Trek, but you don't really see it as often as we see it in, in, in literature. And that's when it just snapped and said, that's how we connect these two movies. It's the Stargate. It's the teleportation device. And it was originally triangular, wasn't it? There were yeah, several several versions of that. That's right. Is that a, a pyramid echo? Yeah, exactly. But then when Roland came up with the idea of how the uh, chevrons would align and yeah. move in, then then the, we knew the triangle wasn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the and also uh, the circle, one of the most universal symbols in the world. So yeah. there's there's something to be said to that too. Um, did the did the whole gate spin on set, or was it just sections of it? Uh, the entire inner circle uh, spun. Okay. It was built by uh, our floor effects guy named Kit West, who had done the Raiders of the Lost Ark movies. Ah. And so it, it was a really functioning device on set. And the, the chevrons that clicked in and the inner circle spinning, that was all, uh, that was all practical. My, oh, my. So if I can go down the, the rabbit hole in terms of minutiae, You'd be like, I don't know, man. This was 30 years. There are seven chevrons in the sequence, but there are nine on the gate. Uh, were there plans for the other two chevrons? Was it just a design aesthetic? The nine looked better? No, no. We The original plan of the movie was to do three movies. And so there was going to be three major addresses. And that's why we needed the nine. Um, but we never got to do parts two and three. Got it. So the second film would have included an eight chevron address? Well, it would, included, it would have included one of the other chevrons that was not in the original. Ah, I see. So one of the chevrons is for one. Okay, interesting. So each chevron had uh, of the three that were remaining on the end had to do with a different, a different location. Different. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So the Stargate was going to go in other places. Yeah, yeah. We yeah we we had big plans for it, but we we never got to explore it. Were there any other contenders for the roles of Jack and Daniel, or were were Russell and Spader the ones? from the beginning you know i think they were our first choices i'm i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure on that but I, I i you know again remember this was an independent movie you know right. mgm was not involved in the making of this film right and so a lot of this had to do with how do we how do we get the money to make this film <laughs> and uh, i'll never forget when we were talking about trying to figure out big stars 
there was kind of like, well, who's your wish list? And, you know, uh, uh, as a guy who, you know, grew up on Kurt Russell movies, (laughs) man, I can't imagine anyone better than Kurt Russell. And he actually turned the film down several times before he finally said yes. What made him say yes? Did you did you adjust something or was it a schedule thing? It was money. It was we just kept offering him more money until he finally said yes. And, And I'll never forget. He he came into the office after he'd said yes. And he said and he said, look, guys, I just want you to know that the kind of money you're offering me is incredible. And I'm I'm, you know, really grateful. And even though I think that this is a really stupid movie, I'm going to I'm going to work my butt off on it because you're paying me so much. So he left the office and we kind of were like, wait, do we really want him in the movie? This guy did big trouble in little China, you know? Well, but what we found out later was he'd been given the wrong script. (laughs) But the reason he turned it down is somehow somebody had sent him the very first draft. Oh, God. Roland and I had worked on this thing for years. And I don't know how the first draft got to him. But the first draft was almost like a high school kid wrote the the first draft. So when we finally gave him the, the shooting draft, he was like, oh, this is really much better. And how much <laughs> money could you have saved if, if the right script? Unbelievable. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but he was a joy. He was an absolute joy to work with. I mean, he 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 told us the truth. That guy worked his butt off on it. He he was a thousand percent committed. I mean, you could see his performance in the movie. He he was totally committed. Even when we were doing really goofy stuff, he just was he was on board, man. And it was great. Him and Spader. My my favorite scene from that movie is, is him you know, is Spader going to him and saying, you know, I don't want to die. You're, these men don't want to die, and these people don't want to die. It's a shame that you're in such a hurry to. And they have that heart to heart connection where Jack admits to Daniel, "This is the reason I'm here. My kid's gone." Um, did the story of fa- of a father who lost his son come from any place specific? You know, I, I don't remember how we came to it, but what's interesting that you're bringing this up is that had been cut from the film along with some other things because our executive producer believed that the film was too slow. And so we'd cut out all the character stuff and it was just kind of pure action. And the movie tested in the toilet. It was just, it was going to be a giant disaster. And everybody walked away from the movie. I mean, literally they walked away. We, we, Roland and I walked in the editing room and it was empty. I mean, they'd sent everyone home. And then Roland and I just said, well, listen, if everyone thinks this is going to be a disaster anyway, let, let's put back all <laughs> So we put back that storyline and all the other character storylines and all the stuff that they said made the movie slow. And then we got to test it one more time before we released it and the slow rating vanished. So what we learned very early on is it's not how many things blow up or how, how many action sequences there are. It's how engaged are we with the characters. And as you just brought that up, that storyline with him is what made his character compelling. Absolutely. And when that was missing, he was just a tough guy being mean for no reason. What? Uh, how was James Spader in his execution of Daniel versus uh, uh, Daniel on the page? It's a fan- it's a fantastic performance. Well, he you know he's a guy who brings so much. You know, I mean, he he's a very serious actor. Just to give an example, you, you know, there's this old joke that they always have in screenwriting where the the writer will write. The army marches over the hill, and then it's a 15-minute sequence of <laughs> armies, right? Yeah, well, go I, do that. Yeah. I had kind of done that in that I wrote in the script, they walk through the Stargate. That's all it said in the script. Literally one line, they walk through the Stargate. But of course, when you see the film, the first group goes through, and then Kurt Russell lifts his gun, and then he goes through. and then, But the last person is Spader. The and inquisitive we to- one. Yeah, and when we went to shoot it, he stopped at the water and he put his hands in. And then he pulled his hands out and he looked at his hands. And meanwhile, uh, Jeff Oaken, who was our effects supervisor, is yelling in my ear, we can't hold the effect that long. Tell him he yeah. can't oh, do that. No, this is going to be, yeah. Like, shut up, shut up, we'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll Live while it's happening? <laughs> Literally while we were shooting it, he's oh like, going, we can't do this, we can't do this. And of course, it's my favorite moment in the entire movie. And that was not in the script. And it was... There's, there's dozens of things like that that Spader brought where he would just be the character and suddenly these, this magic would happen that we had never intended. Was it his intent to rip the one page of the newspaper away from from the guard? It's like little things like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that was absolutely all him. I have had the privilege of 
getting to know Alexis Cruz over the last um, several years. I love that guy. Uh, he just had a baby, and really? yeah, he's uh, he's awesome. And he talks about being 16 years old and being cast in the role, and then having it be revealed to him the scope of what this actual movie is, and being shown his action figure, and you just <laughs> taking him through all this stuff. It, because I mean, that wasn't presented to him when he was. He was cast, according to his memory. It was after the fact that he's seeing, oh my gosh, this is a whole thing, you know? But again, you have to remember, this is 94. Yeah. And CG was not very good in 94. So when we wrote that there was a 15-story set, we had to build a 15-story set. So, you know, that whole entrance of the pyramid was built for real. That chamber inside was built for real. You know, so Roz ship, his his yeah. main thing. Yeah, wasn't that the biggest one of the biggest sound stages in the world? It was actually uh, the it was it's where they used to keep the Spruce Goose, the dome in, in Long Beach. Wow, so it was gigantic. I think that you know when people read it in the script, they didn't realize the scope, they didn't realize the scale. Uh, and and again, I give that a hundred percent to Roland because Roland is so visual, you know, and and he he imagines these things. That I wouldn't dare as a writer, because I'd say we can never afford to do that. We can't. He not, he doesn't care. <laughs> We're gonna make it happen. We'll find a way. We'll figure it out. It's like the gliders. You know, first the first version of the gliders were like this brick-shaped object with 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 weapons turrets, and you know, it's you, there's. Well, they were meant to look like the original ones were meant to look like chariots. Yeah. So that's why they had that shape. But then Roland was like, ah, that's gonna look like that's gonna look terrible. <laughs> yeah, it was just it was just a design aesthetic. It was like you were filming it because there's footage in the special features of them being shot across the the set on wires. Yeah. And so yeah. the cool. Tatopolis did did a last minute design change and created the gliders. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, what a genius! Jeez, that guy is just brilliant. I th I, th I think I mean his work in Stargate is is good. His work in Independence Day is just ridiculous. Yeah, he was he was a gift, and you know he has an acting part in The Patriot. I did not know that. And I just saw the Patriot again recently. The Patriot again, when they're being rescued by the French ships, he's the captain of the French ship commanding them to fire. <laughs> hey, absolutely. We'll go back and see that. I mentioned before uh, we started uh, how Joseph Campbell's hero's journey is crystal clear in this movie, as far as I'm concerned, in three ways. You've got Jack definitely as the reluctant hero going on a journey. Daniel as well. And Skara. You've got three men who have to take on various tasks to either keep from killing themselves, to survive with a paycheck, you know, <laughs> and to uh, to rescue their their people from a malevolent evil force. Was that deliberate or did that just organically appear? And do you agree with that assessment of those three? Are there more in your there, There's more. I mean, if you if you look at, um, and I'm forgetting her name right now. Shauri? Uh, no, the the, uh, the, the, the woman who found the- Yeah, the, Catherine the, Langford. Catherine Langford is our older advisor character. Yeah. You know, so there's a, I mean, look, it, it, it's not a coincidence. We literally, and, and I feel so bad that I don't remember her name at this. It was- Vivica Lindfors. No, no, no. We hired a woman who was an expert in oh. Joseph Campbell. And she's the one who worked with us on the script. And I, I forgive me if you're watching this. I think her first name was Linda, and I'm forgetting her last name. Uh, but she she came in and and looked at the script, and then started talking about Joseph Campbell. And then we started making adjustments. And that's when the script really started to to sing, when we were able to kind of see what we were trying to do, but then put it into a, a, a more traditional framework. Yeah, the uh, the characters all have that arc. And it just it's it's again an example of you know characters that there are certain rules that you just use because they withstand the test of time. There are a lot of mechanic of story mechanics and and world building and rule building in this film. The wormhole only goes one way. The reason for that is so that it prevents them it prevents them from getting home. You know, there's similar similar uh, uh, content with with like the rings and everything else. Uh, did those kind of things come easy when you were developing the script? Uh, were they something like, oh, geez, we have to do this, you know, in order to make this story work this way, or was it a, a, the whole process? Oh, this is amazing. Let's do this because it'll because it'll lead to this. Well, that particular thing 
was essential because what we were trying to tell was a stranded story. So in a, in a, in a traditional stranded story, you know, you're the, the, you're on a ship, you're going somewhere, but then the ship gets wrecked and now you're stuck on an island. How do you get off the island, right? And so that was the idea. And then uh, uh, to give it more character is that it, the, the, the being stranded wasn't an accident. Daniel didn't tell them that they would be stranded. He knows good and well what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, because he wants to go on the adventure so much. Right. So, You're a lying was, son of a bitch! So that was <laughs> the part that was surprising is we made up a whole lot of ancient Egyptian mythology. We just made it up. And then we hired an expert from UCLA to come in, Stuart, forgive me. And he came in and basically said, oh, almost all of this is correct. And I was like, it can't be correct. We just made it up. And then he kind of smiled and said, well, that's the amazing thing about ancient Egypt. If you go in with almost any theory, you will go there and you'll find evidence to support your theory. <laughs> and then he actually created or the recreation of the ancient Egyptian, which doesn't exist. And I'll never forget our, our, um, our executive producer was so angry when he found out how much money I'd spent to recreate a language that no one on earth would know if it was real or not real. And I kept telling him, no, it's important. It's important. He goes, it needs to be correct. Block, 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 no one will know. And I said, trust me, it's important. And I'll never forget before the movie came out, I was doing the uh, tour of all these, the science fiction conventions. And there was enormous hesitancy to support Stargate before it came out, mostly because we had the word star in the title. And so they thought, oh, they're trying to rip off Star Trek or Star Trek. Battlestar Galactic, yeah. And it wasn't until they found out that the language had actually been really recreated that they started to take us seriously. And I, it, was a, it was a very interesting thing. I, I, I remember actually being at the Denver uh, 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 convention. And as that information came out, more and more people came over and started asking about the language. And, Suddenly we were okay because we had we had we had taken that step. So I, I, I felt vindicated. <laughs> well you you proved that science fiction can be serious within its context. You know, I mean if you're going to go to the trouble to create something, you know, and, and you give a crap about it, you know, you're going to make it as faithful to as faithful as you can to what we can create or recreate. So that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, look, it is a fantasy movie, but every place we could put a little bit of an anchor in, it 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 hooked into something, whether it was conscious or subconscious. And I'm sure you've been told repeatedly throughout the years. I've I've lost count of the number of people that I've encountered who have have become uh, his, historians or or inst, uh, instructors or Egyptologists based on their initial encounter with this movie. No, I, 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 I would say over the years, it's been a few dozen times people have said something to that effect to me. Yeah, that's got to be rewarding. I mean, the, you're, you're creating a piece of entertainment and, you know, in, in many cases, you change lives. It, it's, uh, it, it's remarkable. But I mean, that's what this whole fandom is, though. You know, I mean, whether it's of this movie or, or any of the others that are supported by this group is that they tend to take people who, who, who are very smart, but felt that they were outcasts or felt like they were weird. Yeah. Like and Daniel. Then, yeah. And then through these fandoms, they realize, oh, I, I'm not so weird. There's a lot of people just like me. Yeah. And I have something to contribute. Mm -hmm. So I just have to figure out what it is. <laughs> Tell us about shooting in Yuma. What what month? What time of the year was that? Um, it, I don't remember what month it was, but it was hot. It was over okay. 120 degrees. And we, we had PAs with big water barrels strapped to their back. And they had sprayers like the kind you would normally do to put like uh, 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 insecticide on, on plants. And they would just walk down and spray down the extras uh, because it was so hot. And, and we had several collapses in the heat that we had to take to hospital. And it was insane. Yeah. Of course, not to wear the costume. You know, that was one of those Clydesdale horses like, like you see the, the Michelob. Uh, for uh, the Mastich, yeah. You know, and that, that Clydesdale horse had this huge costume on in that heat. You know, so we were constantly keeping the, the keeping that horse watered down and cooled down. And it was nuts. And the logistical issues of, you know, something so ridiculous and, and you know, important. And when you think about it, because the camera's going there, of, of wiping away footprints in the sand. You know, I mean, today you would just erase it digitally. It wouldn't be a problem. We couldn't do that then. And, and I remember at one point, Roland had this brilliant idea. He said, we'll get a helicopter and it'll just blow the sand. 
So we brought in this helicopter and it was a disaster. And then I remember one day, you know, you know, there's that great moment where Kasuf screams at the top of the hill and he yeah, runs battle cry. Follow him. Well, take one of that. We had nine cameras going. And what we should have said to the extras is just follow Kasuf. What we ended up saying to the extras was run straight towards the camera. But there were nine cameras. So he goes, Fire! and he goes running down the hill and everybody disperses. And by the time Kasuf got to the bottom of the hill, he was alone. The <laughs> entire sand dune was completely ruined because there were footprints everywhere. And, uh, uh, you know, we had to move to another sand dune and do it all over again. <laughs> so it didn't bother resetting. That's the next one. Let's go over there. They're all the yeah, same. We had, we had no choice. <laughs> oh, my God. That's fantastic. Eric, Eric was exceptional in that role. You know, and he's done his... His CV is a mile long at 10 point font. You know, what a talented actor. I would imagine, and maybe maybe you did write it in, the amount of humor that he brought in, so much of that had to have been him. Well, you know, I mean, we always try to put humor in wherever possible. Right. Once we realized we had someone with his gift, it was just, oh, let's crank it up. <laughs> let's just crank it up. Absolutely. I was so surprised years later in finding out that there was going to be, uh, that there were two more films in the original uh, trilogy planned because there's so few movies these days that end with the end and Stargate does. And I was like, that was good, you know? And then I found out that you wanted to do two more. For the original trilogy, is there anything that you can say about what you wanted to do with it? I'd love to hear whatever you're willing to say. You just, you just told well, earlier that there were two other locations that were planned. So a location for each additional movie. I'll say this. I'll say this just because I don't think we're ever going to get to do it. Right. So, you know, there are two different places on earth that are famous for pyramids, you know, and one was an Egyptian and our second was, was going to be a Mayan culture. Okay. So not necessarily Ra's race again. He was the last of oh. his race for good. Yeah. And then the third was going to tie in almost every mystery that we've ever had on earth. Whether it was Bigfoot or the Yeti, or <laughs> we were going to tie everything into a larger mythology. Tapestry. Yeah. And, and it was, it was going to be so much fun. It was going to be so wild. But we, we never got to go there. We never got to explore it. Was it the TV franchise, the success of the TV franchise, that where MGM was like, no, we're just not interested in doing it this direction? What was the – what was it money? What was the, the biggest factor in not, uh, in not pursuing that? It, it was the television show. Okay. I mean, what, what had happened was, again – the film was made entirely independently. There was yeah. no studio involved. So MGM uh, uh, agreed to release the film when no one else would release it because no one believed in the movie. And the week before the movie opened, the people who had financed the movie, which was a group out of, out of France, they were so sure that they had a bomb, they sold the movie to MGM for $5 million. So then MGM owned the movie. And I'm guessing oh, even in that money, that was a steal at that time, right? Oh, yeah. Well, it's a movie that cost $50 million. $50 million. <laughs> uh, and, and, it, and it made over $200 million at the, that time. It was the largest October opening in history at that, at that time. And uh, so MGM now owned it. And they decided they wanted to do a TV series. Roland and I went in to meet with them to talk about the series. And they said, oh, we, we don't really want you guys involved. And we were like, really? <laughs> okay. And uh, they went on their own. Okay. And, you know, it, so it was, it was a very painful thing for a long time because you're, you're watching. Yeah, something that you gave birth to. Somebody else raised your children, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was very hard. And that's why, it would, you know, it was so interesting because uh, – uh, I was I was I was very hostile to the series, uh, especially because I don't blame you. But the first couple episodes of the series had full frontal nudity. Yeah, and I was like, "That's not Stargate." Yeah, do you guys have any idea what sh what show we're doing? Yeah, even so Brad Wright had a problem with that. That was Showtime. Showtime yeah. said, "If you want this, it has to have that." And then they never did it again. And the 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 final cut of Children of the Gods, they took it out. So yeah. So I I had kind of you know rebelled again. I was angry that the studio had cut us out of it that they didn't want to do the movies. 
But what was interesting is that many years later, um, it was obvious to me that even though I had not been watching the show, that they must have been doing something right because you don't get to live that long. You don't get to have that many fans. You don't get that kind of passion unless you've done a, a really good show. 17 seasons, yeah. 350 episodes, something's working. And the passion of the so, fan base has only grown. So I reached out to uh, Jonathan Glasner and I said, let's go have lunch. I reached out to Jonathan Glasner, who I had never met. And as you said, 17 seasons of Stargate. And we go out and we have lunch and we hit it off. And next thing I know, he and I are doing The Outpost together. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, 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 he and I have actually talked about a very different Stargate idea. You know, and I hope one day I can talk to MGM about it uh, as a series. So as a series, not the reboot trilogy that, that you were... No, nah, I think together. that I think that ship has sailed. Okay, I think it's sailed. I want to speak a little bit on that. Uh, you hired Nicholas Wright and James Woods. My understanding was, and this may be rumor, but I was in um, L.A. at a at a props warehouse at the time, selling off a lot of the, the original Stargate props, and I knew people who said that they had friends in the industry where they were building new helmets. I mean, it got that far. They were, they were, according to them, they were building new um, prototype helmets for a new, a new Stargate. How far did that go? Well, that may have happened. Uh, what what ha basically happened is is uh, uh, the script for the these the the, the movies came out right after uh, uh, the sequel of, of Independence Day, and the making of uh, the Independence Day sequel was a for me a terrible experience. Really? Okay. And, and then when I read the script of where we were going with Stargate, I, I, I basically just lost interest. I thought, you know, I, I, I don't like working at studios. I don't have a good time doing that. I like being independent. I don't like the direction where the script's going. And, and I, I basically bowed out. Okay. And then I know they went on for a little while after that. So they may have, they may have gotten that far, but, but I wasn't involved anymore at that point. But a script for the first uh, reboot film exists? Yes. Okay. Interesting. Would it, you, did it include any of the characters from the original or was it? A yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, it was, it was the original characters, but then kind of with this other global warming idea that okay. felt ha heavy handed to me. Ah, uh, okay. And would it have been a straight reboot or would it have, have honored uh, the content from that had come before from, uh, from the original film? From the original film, there was a, there was a lot being pulled from that, but okay. then it, like I said, it went in a whole other direction and and didn't at all connect with the series. Got it. I think that was another thing that could have been very, very tough for the fans. It's so frustrating, you know, that development hell, so much stuff lives there in the industry. Some things get out and get made radically different to what they were meant to be. And some things, you know, like, like Independence Day, it just all came together. What a legacy, though, with this this franchise. I am, I, I would have so been interested to see what your take would have been with the property going in the direction that you had wanted to, despite the fact that I love the the TV property as well. And you know, I think that there's, I think that there's room in the multiverse for all of it. Well, that's the beauty of Stargate is that between all the series and the movie and the different worlds is that. There's a lot of stories that can be told. I mean, honestly, I think if there ever was a property that lent itself to a cinematic universe, it's Stargate, and it hasn't really been exploited. Um, and that, that's why I said, you know, when, uh, when Glasser and I started talking about how to do a Stargate that was um, not stepping on the toes of anything else, right? we came up with something and got very excited about it. But uh, then COVID hit, and we never had a chance to tell anyone. So <laughs> who knows? Maybe uh, maybe next year we'll, we'll sit down with MGM and pitch them. Oh, so that was my next question then. So, you know, I mean, COVID notwithstanding and everything else that's going on, uh, Stargate is not the t off the table forever for you. I think the features are. Okay. But I think under the right situation, I would consider doing a series again. Okay. If it was the right show and it, you know, and, and done in the right way. You know, it, it, I, I'm in a kind of crazy, fortunate place in my life where uh, I, I've been able to work somewhat independently, and and uh, uh, not everybody likes the stuff I do, but I like it, and that's you kind have of to make it for you first. Yeah, you yeah, know, that's kind of that's kind of heaven when you get to do the stuff that you like doing, and uh, uh, and then it gets embraced. So, 
yeah, if, if we could set up something like that, I, I would go back to it. And also, I just love working with Jonathan. He's he's been great. I mean, he's cool. We're forty six episodes of Outpost soon that we've done together now, and the you know I, I just I just love his work. Absolutely, I do too. I have some fan questions here that okay. have been submitted. Uh, if you don't mind, Spartan three four three. Oh no, we've already ans- addressed that with the the plans <laughs> for the uh, sequels. Excuse me, I'm just pulling this open for the first Don't time worry. here. Gate Gab, can you talk about uh, the casting process for the original movie? Any of the characters that we haven't discussed that um, that surprised you when well, they were brought to life? We were having a lot of trouble finding uh, uh, our female lead, Shaori. Yes, and. Uh, we were actually, we'd already started shooting the movie and we hadn't, hadn't cast it yet. And everyone was freaking out and just saying, what are we going to do? But Roland was absolutely adamant. He said, I'm not casting someone who's a compromise. She's got to walk in the door and we got to know it's her. And uh, when, when this young actress from Israel showed up, mm-hmm. Millie Avatar, it, it just blew our minds. Millie. Millie not only nailed it, but also gave her a strength and an independence that was beyond what we were writing and made it much more interesting. And, 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 and I learned a real valuable lesson from Roland that day that you don't compromise. You, you got to get the right casting or it, it just doesn't work. Yeah. The, the consequences can be. Yeah. There, there's well, the consequence that we had on that was Jay Davidson because, you know, uh, Jay Davidson had just been nominated for an Oscar for, um, what was the name of that movie? That's the Crying something. The crying Game. Yeah. The Crying Game. And so our, our executive producer said, oh, we, this guy's going to be worth a fortune for us in in um, foreign sales. But we thought, is this guy really someone who can go toe-to-toe with Kurt Russell? Or is, is that going to be believable? And, and Spader. Yeah. And, and we shot the movie, and and it didn't work. And he didn't work. It was, it was, it was bad casting. It just it wasn't right. And I'll never forget... Roland and I were in a car together, just lamenting that our whole movie was falling apart because our villain was not working. And then I, I remember I turned to Roland and said, wait a minute, Roland. Ra doesn't work for the aliens. He is an alien. And Roland goes, we've already shot the picture. How, we, how do we do that change? And I go, we'll do a day of reshoots. <laughs> and so that whole turning Ra into an alien was all done on a Sunday. <laughs> Beforehand, he worked for them? The original, if you look at the, um, if you look at the extended version, there's this scene where they, they come and come grab him. To, they come and grab him, and in in, in 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 the original, they grabbed him to come work for them, and so he was their slave master in essence. But that didn't work at all. Cheeky <laughs> buggers, you hit it well. So Never then when we considered that. So when we changed it, we made his voice weird. We made his eyes go out. We put an alien inside of his skull. Then <laughs> <It went great. laughs> all that weird behavior he was doing suddenly had a meaning. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no, that's that's great. I'm I'm blown away. Wow. Okay. Well, you you have to work with what you've got, you know. And you know, if it's already in the can, what you do you do? Figure it out. <laughs> Absolutely. You're going to find a way. It, the interesting thing was I was so worried that he was going to be upset because that's not what we had attended. And I'll never forget. He saw the picture and he came to me with tears in his eyes and he said, you saved me. He goes, I thought I had ruined the picture. He goes, you saved me. So he he loved the change that we had done. Wow. Good that was that was a surprise. And, and I was grateful. How nice. Absolutely. Yeah. John 42. If the ancient aliens TV show. Oh, boy. <laughs> was around when you were writing the movie, um, would you have considered making the pyramids power stations instead of landing platforms? Um, well, no, we, not for our story. Yeah. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of where our thing came from was the, uh, uh, the, the Von Daniken novels, you know, the, the chariots of the gods. Yes. And, and the mystery of why were the pyramids built? And so the idea of it, that they were actually landing platforms one gave us an answer to, to a mystery, but it also cracked us up. <laughs> I mean, we li- we literally fell over laughing after we came up with that. Who's going to sit on that? Yeah, we just like, <laughs> what a bizarre thing. What if what if that whole thing there was just to prop up a spaceship? And, and so <laughs> it gave it gave us a thrill. <laughs> Absolutely. Ian says, "I'm an editor. I'm an editor. I'm working on a short film currently. What skills do you like to see in um, 
in editors that you work with. And what are your favorite kind of cuts? Smash cuts, J cuts, L cuts? I'm assuming you would know what that means. So it's, a, it's an excellent question. Uh, I love the editing room. That's my favorite part of the entire filmmaking process. I thought I think if my career ever took a nosedive, I would try and get a job in an editing room. I, I, I absolutely love that. It's fun. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the last chance you have to fix things. You know, yes. It's the last, it, it's, uh, I mean, you can't take a terrible movie and make it a great movie. But if you have a movie that's almost there, you can get it the rest of the way. And, uh, uh, and you can get rid of all those things that bump you right out of the picture, too. And sometimes you can really change performances and change intentions. And, and we sure did a lot of that on, on Stargate. Um, I wouldn't say that I have any favorite kind of editing, because I think it really depends on, on what you're doing. What you're doing. Uh, if, if, uh, if someone were to look at, uh, say, the, the pilot episode I did of Leverage versus a uh, uh, bad Samaritan, they'd see completely different styles of editing, even That's on the point. same director, because you're trying to accomplish things differently. What does the story need? Yeah. yeah. And what is the tone? Because, you know, uh, I, I, I would stay on shop, shots for a crazy long amount of time on Bad Samaritan to try and make your skin crawl. Intensity. I, I would never do that on one of these other shows where I want it fast and poppy and fun. So, uh, you know, I, I like all the tools. You know, and the, the the fun part is figuring out what's the right tool, and and what I look for editor for in editors is is editors who have their own ideas. Beth Reescraft was one of the actors in in uh, um, Leverage. She just directed for the first time an episode for us, and I was telling her that so many times when I'm directing, I'll see the first cut and I'll say to the editor, No, 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 it's not supposed to go like that. You start with this shot, then go to this shot, then go to this shot, and go to this shot. Then they'll do it the way I said. And then I'll look at it and go, show me the way you had it again. Because <laughs> very often, you know, it's that fresh eye. So, you know, what, what I would say I don't like in an editor is someone who's simply doing what I tell them to do. Follows then I the can, rules. Just yeah. follows the rules. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like an editor who has opinions, even if I don't agree with them, uh, who, who has a vision, who, who says, well, what if we try this and what if we try that? And then usually between what I want and what they want or what they come up with. Uh, you know, then real magic can happen. I, I can completely see where you're coming from with that. I had the the privilege uh, of working with a team when I was in college and creating a, uh, a choose-your-own-adventure DVD movie uh, as my final in college back in 2005. So it's before wow. Netflix and all these other things, and it had 15 endings. Oh and my God. I, was, I was privileged to collaborate with a group of young people that had great ideas. And I had my – it was my project, and I had – it's going to be this way, you know, but please give me your ideas, but I'm going to shoot this first. Eight, nine times out of ten, their ideas would improve upon it. I, I, I mean, maybe, maybe I just have crappy ideas. But no, I mean, they're also seeing That's it as problem. well. That's the, I think really good filmmaking is being open to ideas from everyone. You know, the PAs sometimes have the best idea. You, you never know. But if you're not open to hearing it, you know, I, uh, Tony Bill once said to me that he looked at, his, at the director as a funnel not as a, 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 an engine, that he, he gets the greatest ideas from everyone around him and funnel, and then his taste, or her taste, funnels it down to the right choices. Isn't that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Free Spirit, Triple Nine, how did the design of the Horus and Anubis guards uh, come to be? What gave the production team the idea to go with the mechanical helmets, and uh, were they based on the depictions of hieroglyphs? Some impressive yeah, I mean, effects that could not have been easy. Well, that was... Um, that was actually the, the, the first CG that Roland and I had ever done because we couldn't wow. figure out a way to make the helmets actually do any of that. Right. And uh, it was a it was a, a, an effects house called Kleiser Walzak. And they 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 designed how the mechanics worked and the visual was designed by uh, Tatopoulos. Yeah. But it was it, it was a scary thing because we didn't know if that was going to work. Your camera's moving. The actors are moving. It's an intensive. Sh I can't imagine how much that cost. In those days, it was really, it was really cutting edge. It, you know, it was one of the few things we did that was cutting edge. Because most of the stuff we did was kind of old-fashioned techniques because of the budget we had. That that was the one thing where we couldn't figure out any other way to do it. And uh, um, the, you know, the director Randall Kleiser. It was actually, it was his brother who whose company did those digital effects. So yeah, we, we, I was real proud of that part. But the, yeah, it was a tricky design because obviously we had to do something that represented, you know, the original designs of Horus and Anubis that you'd seen on hieroglyphics forever. But we needed it to have that 
that hidden, that they're not really gods. It's, it's, a, it's a facade to hide the, the person underneath. Just press this little button right here. <laughs> Gib says. And of course, that's Jaiman Hunso. So, yes, exactly. Before he was big. So you years know? later, when Spielberg said he discovered him, not so fast. No, no, not we at all. We found him in a cattle call. <laughs> and we That's had him. right. <laughs> Absolutely. And what a career he's had. I love oh I love watching his stuff. He's, he's a force. Gibb says, given the advancements in tech, how or what would you have done differently in filming production in production if you made the film today? I think we would have we would have made as big as it was. I think we would have made it bigger. I think we would have made the cities bigger. We'd have done more set extension. I think things like that just to give it more lush. Uh, you know, when when you saw all the extras lined up, most of those were sticks with with costumes on them. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just panning. You're you're moving yeah. fast enough that you don't yeah. tell. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. My God. Yeah. Today, you would actually just digitally insert them, add thousands of people, and and make it uh, amazing. Then we had about three hundred extras at the front, and then everything behind them was sticks with uh, with wardrobe stuck on top of it. It works. It works. I bought it. That shot, that master shot of the city, you know, and. And sixteen nine, you know, screen. Actually, it's twenty one nine. The aspect ratio for the film, and it just keeps on going and going and going. It's one of the most magnificent images. I mean, that's got to be a model. No, that whole center was built for real. The things on east and west, that was an extension with the model. But that whole thing that they walked through was was actually built. So when you see that big crane shot, that's craning through an actual set. It was. Those were the biggest sets I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, there before or since. Wow, and uh, Alexis talked about burning them like in effigy at the end of uh, at the end of production. Yeah, man, oh man. They, so the so the, the city was never a model for the for the wide shot at all. Yes, because I mean, when when we had that dust storm come, yes, we 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 built a model for that. Okay, and, and that first big wide shot was a combination of the real set with the model. Got it. Was Egyptian mythology always meant to be at the center of the movie's story, or were other uh, ideas explored for the for the initial film? You talked, you said Mayan would have eventually come later. Yeah, no, the first one was always intended to be Egyptian, um, but we did we did then want to go into other mythologies afterwards, and then we wanted to try to make connections between them. Absolutely, and that's that's one of the things that um, that Stargate itself, SG One and Atlantis, went on to do. So That's they, right. they Atlantis mythology. One of the one of the guys in uh, Daniel's audience brings up men from Atlantis, and SG One eventually went on to do that. So it's interesting that you know, and it makes sense that you know a lot of those elements would have been in your story anyway. So yeah. had you had the chance to explore that, Teresa McAllister, do you believe it's possible that that technology exists on Earth hidden somewhere? Um, possible, yes. Probable, no. Okay. Uh, Pete Mine, where's the third Independence Day movie, Dean? <laughs> the way you set uh, well, it up yeah. in the end, it's it's a fair question. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. The original version that I wrote with Roland Emmerich was actually two scripts. The the, and, 90, the, the 96 movie or the one no, with Independence Day 2? Independence Day 2, when we actually submitted it, we actually submitted part two and three. Got it. Two full scripts written. But in those scripts... We had Will Smith. Ah, uh, okay. And when Will Smith changed his mind and decided he didn't want to do the film, then the first draft, first script got rewritten dramatically. So I don't really know where part three would have gone. I really wish we could have shot the version that we wrote because I, I, it was interesting because when we first handed it into the studio, they said it was the best first draft of anything they'd ever seen. And then by the time we made the movie, it was a radically different film. Is it just because along the way you had to compromise or along the way things just changed but by the nature of the, the nature of the beasts is what it well, is? Well, I think the first thing was not having Will Smith. Yeah. And that that really changed it a lot and, and changed where the focus was. And then once Will Smith was not there, then there were a whole lot of voices involved in development that, you know, because remember, when we did the first movie, Roland and I wrote it ourselves. Nine studios right. wanted it. And when we sold it, we had total creative control to do the sequel. Suddenly we didn't own our own movie anymore. And we had to please a lot of different voices that frankly, I don't think ever really understood 
uh, Independence Day. You know, we, we had notes from the studio saying, well, you know, you can't do comedy today because it's not modern. I was like, but Independence Day is Independence borderline Day comedy. requires comedy. That's yeah. what makes it makes the glue. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what made it fun is like we acknowledged what was silly and said, yes, go with it. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone did and had fun. But so, yeah, so that 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 did not go well. Marsha Middleton. Hi, Marsha. Friend of mine. Uh, Dean, you've always <laughs> been close to your fans and we adore you for that. Uh, have you ever put in just a little something, a scene or a phrase in one of your shows just for the fans? Like a nod. Oh, all the time. I mean, most of the Easter eggs I know that the audience aren't going to get who are new to it. That really it's only the hardcore fans. And, and usually, especially in our TV series, as we get farther along in them, I stop writing for new fans at a certain point. Because I figure if you've, if you've come up, you know, if you're in season three and you're still with me, you're I'm writing to you at that point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, in doing that. And then sometimes I'll tell you this, because, you know, I do, I do love to read what the fans write about the show. That's the beauty of social media. Exactly. For better or for worse. There it is. But I'll tell you, I, I have, I have, especially in the librarians, I altered the course of where I was going based on feedback hearing things. The fans were, well, just hearing what the fans were, were wanting or where they were misled or, or things that they had questions about made me go, Hmm, that's actually not a bad idea. Maybe we go that way. Or maybe, maybe I can answer that question in a different way. Or, Isn't you know, so I, I, I really enjoy it. That's great. It's like, no, it's going to be exactly the way I wanted it, and you're going to eat it, and you're going to like it. This is what my mother used to say to me. But, you know, that makes – but as long as it's still, you know, from a place of, of where your vision is, why not? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're – I think when people plan out five seasons of a show, they're missing out on the best part of the creative process because often the actors are going to do things that you didn't expect. And it's going to create – in the original Leverage, we never really planned for Hardison and Parker to have a love affair. But when we saw them on screen together, there was magic. And we said, oh, it made sense. This is going somewhere. Let's 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 explore it. Absolutely. And I remember on, on also on Leverage, there was a moment where Tim Hutton, when they mentioned his father, he, he turned and his eyes got all. I was like, "Ooh, what what's the story between him and his father? Let's go figure that out. Right and that now. was Hutton's <laughs> just gesture, a little piece. Was, yeah. Wow. So I think you have to be open to so many things because that's where that's where it gets interesting. That's where it gets creative. Summer wants to know any information yet on a new season of Almost Paradise. Where can I show my support uh, for the show most? Electric Now, Amazon Prime. So uh, um, we will be making an announcement in the first quarter of next year of where the show will be available. And when we make that announcement, please, everybody rush there and support the show. <laughs> and they've told us that if the show does well, they'll pick up season two. And, there you go. And we're already working on storylines for season two and. You know, Christian Kane's desperate to get back to the Philippines. So uh, uh, first quarter next year, stay tuned to, to our Twitter feeds and uh, we'll be making an announcement. Great. SG-1 props. Along with the movie, there were uh, the series of Stargate novels published, the, the Bill McKay books. Um, yeah, those are great. Were any of your notes in that or did he just take those in a, in a completely different direction? You guys say, OK, go have fun. No, no, he was, he, we, we worked with him on those original ones and, uh, okay. and, uh, uh, I'm real proud of those and I, and I support those entirely. Do you consider them to be in your canon? Yeah. Okay. So they are natural extensions of, so your movies could have folded those in. A hundred percent. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I did not know that. Well, they, um. There's, there's a lot of fans who have read them and loved them. I have not actually read them, so I'm going to have to go read them now, they're, knowing they're that. They're quite good. He, he's, a really good he's a really good writer. He's really engaging. All right. Absolutely. Uh, and someone brought up Electric Now, and I had not been aware of Electric Now before you had mentioned it in our uh, email exchange leading up to this interview. What can you tell us about it? So, you know, we, what we came to realize is that we had – these wonderful fan bases. You know, we had this great fan base for Leverage. We had a great fan base for uh, the librarians. We had a cool fan base for the Triangle. And I thought, you know, we need to have some one-stop shop where everyone can go and 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 congregate. And so we created a, a free streaming app, but because it's free, it has commercials. Right. But it's absolutely free, free to download, free to watch. And it has all the shows that uh, Electric has made and all the shows that we have distribution rights to. And we're adding new content all the time. 
Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we're still working out some of the bugs on the app. <laughs> so, right, you have to start somewhere. Uh, but uh, uh, we've got some big changes happening very soon. We're about to add about 200 hours more of content. Wow. And, you know, I think, I think in a time where everybody's paying a lot of money for their streaming services, it's nice to be able to get additional content that you don't have to pay for. And the fun thing with Electric Now is it has... For those of us who like the old school, just turn on your television and have stuff on, uh, it has a live channel that plays 24-7, and it, and it has a program guide in the app to tell you what's on. And it has has our movies, it has our, our TV shows, and it has our podcast network. And and that kind of exploded. You know, we, we really surprised, but, uh, you know, we, we launched... Uh, the Inglorious Trexperts, which is our, our our podcast to Star Trek. <laughs> yes. And I recognize some of the people on that. I watch them like, I know that guy. Oh, this is good. Yeah. yeah and we've had amazing guests on it. And, and they've got something like 25,000 subscribers now. So it's just it's just wow. nuts. Wow. Do you think that Dial the Gate could find a place there? I think Dial the Gate needs to be on Electric now. I think you need to put a, put it on our on our channel. Not I, exclusively. You can still put it in other places. But yeah. I, think, Syndicate. I think you should be on our place. Okay. 100%. Absolutely, I'm. I'm definitely uh, very open to pursuing that. And uh, excellent, we would I, love to have you. I, I. I would love to, Dean. This has been a treat. I have been looking forward to this for for weeks now, and I hope that fans have enjoyed this uh, as much as I have. We're already at uh, nearly a thousand playbacks. So uh, <laughs> the the interest in this franchise and in your work has not gone away. It is an evergreen piece of art that, in many cases, is more relevant now, today, than when it was when it came out. You know, in terms of the questions that it asks, in terms of making us question who we are and what our potential can be as individuals and where our place, frankly, is in the universe. Uh, and your work has changed my life. And it oh. means a great deal to me to be able to sit down with you and talk with you about it. Well, I've had a lot of fun, and and I'm so excited that your podcast has been blowing up, and it's I hope ridiculous. to see it keep growing. But you know, I think the thing is why your podcast is doing so well is kind of what I think has been the reason that I've been able to have success is that I actually really like the stuff I make, and that passion becomes infectious. And I think your passion is infectious, and that's why when people see this, it's it's genuine, and it's not just something the studio is paid for to promote their their work. It's actual. It's actual passion. It's actual love. And uh, uh, nothing is more infectious than that. Well, I appreciate you, sir. And I do appreciate you taking the time. And, you know, we're, we're just getting started here. And I think that there's still a lot left to do. And uh, I'd love to have you back on in 2021. You got it.